Welcome to Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will bring you an inspiring person to help you improve in all areas of your life. We'll be chatting with friends old and new who have incredible stories and experiences to share. We'll be listening to some of their obstacles and how they've shown resilience to overcome them. Each episode should give you value and influence and inspire you to your greatness. So welcome to Make It Happen. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Dalton, and we're on episode number six, and I'm delighted to be joined by, now this is another mouthful, every every guest I get on is a, is, a, is a big mouthful. I was just checking I had my details correct there when I was doing my research. So he's a former professional track and field athlete. His achievements include two times 400 metres European champion, world 400 metre finalist, he represented Ireland in 2008 Beijing Olympics, a national outdoor and indoor 400 meters record holder, author, and winner of Celebrity Master Chef. I just had to get that in there at the end. <laughs> David Gillick, welcome. Cheers, thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate you for coming in. Um, I put out on social today, uh, just mention yourself was going to be on the podcast. And before I get into the questions that the guys and girls threw in, I'd love to go back. I was doing some research on how sport became such a big part of your life. Yeah. Would you just tell us how that journey began? Yeah, like I suppose it goes back to my, my family, my roots, if you like. Um, I was raised up in Ballantyre, um, and my house literally is on, my parents' house on Ludford Road, which backed on to uh, Ballantyre Community School. And that's where Dundrum Athletic Club originated, started. And I'm the youngest of four. So I literally just followed suit to my older brothers and my sister and joined the club. And that's where I suppose athletics kind of started. Um, and from there, I enjoyed it. I, I suppose when you're in school as well, I was the fastest in my class. And that's okay. kind of an important thing, you know, <laughs> when you're in primary school. Um, so I, I kind of always knew I had, I was fast. I suppose I had a talent. And that's where it really all kicked off. Um, I played other sports growing up. I played a lot of GA, a lot of soccer. Um, and it wasn't until kind of my teenage years did kind of, you know, I got a little bit better athletics, um, the other sports kind of maybe not so. And then I didn't progress at, at athletics, but I, I just enjoyed it. So I kept at it. So, but the way things evolved, I began to kind of see which one I liked more and enjoyed more. So the, the soccer went by the wayside and then eventually GA went and I focused on athletics. But was that coming into your teens or? Late teens by this okay. stage. Yeah. Um, and I, I always remember in Benilda's, I went to school in Benilda's in Kilmacud and I won a All-Ireland Schools gold medal in 400 hurdles when I was in about fifth year. So again, that was a bit of a confidence boost, a bit, bit of belief there. Um, the following year, I, I won the 400 metre flat. Um, so that's no hurdles. Um, and that kind of, again, gave me a little bit of belief. The following year, but this stage now is in first year in college, the World Juniors were taking place in Kingston, Jamaica. And the qualifying standard, I think it was about 48 dead for the 400 metres. And that year I ran 48-4. So I missed wow. out on the qualification for that as an individual. But they sent a relay team, a 4 by 400 relay team. And I went to those championships in Kingston, Jamaica, and it just blew my mind. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, as a relay team, we made the semifinals. We did okay. Um, but the big thing was watching Usain Bolt, two years younger than me. So he's 16. Um, he's obviously from Jamaica. Um, so he's in the capital of Jamaica, Kingston. And he's winning the 200 metres and 40,000 people shouting, Bolt, Bolt, Bolt. And I, I'll never, ever forget that because it was just one of these moments where you kind of think, you know what, this is amazing. I came back from those championships and I thought, you know what, I, I want me to be out there. That's that's my focus. That's my goal. And I decided there and then that it's going to pack in all of the sport, all the GA, and just solely focus on athletics. And... That must have been hard to tell your parents or was that a big decision or to go, I want to do this full time? It was because I think Irish culture, the GA is such a stronghold um, You know, in your parish, in your community. Um, my family were involved in the local club, Ballantyre St. John's. My brothers played, my dad, you know, would be up in the clubhouse and all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, I had, I was decent enough at the, at the GA, you know, Um but again, in a club scenario, they want all the players there. Um, so when I said, listen, I'm packing it in, I'm focused on athletics. Yeah, I, I think there was a few people were kind of like, ah, you know, he, he should stay in the club and should, should play GAA. And that was a little bit tough because you're leaving a you're leaving a team environment as well. A lot of those lads I would have grown up with, um, you know, friends in school, your social side of it as well. So you're packing a lot, um, a lot in, you know, and you're focusing on a sport that is relatively individual 
people and you know it's just you so there's a huge kind of difference there and that was that was different and it was tough but I just I just felt that's where I'd make big progress that I, I really kind of I suppose the belief came when I went to Jamaica and I came back and I just thought you know what I really want that to me. I want to be out there on the track as an individual, representing my country on the biggest stage. So that became the goal. That became the purpose, if you like. And when did the journey jump to the UK where you went full-time and coach? And Yeah, like a huge change. Well, that, that didn't happen until 2006. So I think 2005 was a big year for me. That's when I, I won my first European title um, in Madrid in the indoors. And I went into those cha- or that championship completely utterly under the radar. Nobody really expected a whole lot. I was young. Um, I hadn't competed as an individual uh, at a major senior championship. And next minute I won a gold medal. And I think at the time it was Ireland's first gold medal in sprint event in nearly 76 years. So it was quite a big thing for our sport because generally we were successful at middle to long distance, you know, and the great names like Sonia, the Cocklands and all these sort of people, Tracy and and the rest of them. And suddenly you've won a medal in a sprint event. So that was a huge thing. And for me personally, it was a massive thing. And again, you talk about belief, confidence. Suddenly I had won a gold medal on the international stage. So I had a year left in DIT Angel Street and I saw that out and then it was a case of like, what am I going to do the rest of my life? You know, um, a lot of my friends, lads in college were all coming out, getting jobs. The country was taking off. They're moving out of home. They're doing all those things, going traveling. But for me, um, deep down again, I just wanted to give it a go. Um, I really wanted to give it a crack. And I always remember been at home, I think it was like a couple of days after things had finished and I'd handed in my thesis and all that. And I remember my mum kind of turned around going, well, what are you going to do next? And I was like, I'm not really sure, you know. And mum was like, would you would you give running a go? And I thought, you know, yeah, I kind of want them. Mother's wise words. Yeah, and I always remember because she was there in front of the TV doing the ironing, you know. It was just a very kind of poignant moment. And I can always just remember her kind of saying, well, you know, David, if, if you want to really give it a go, you might need to look, you know, abroad. And that's when I suppose the seed was planted in, in terms of, you know what, if I do want to be world-class, I need to put myself in a world-class environment. And that's not been kind of to discredit the guys I was training with or the setup um, that was in Ireland at the time. It's a change a lot now, but I just felt if I wanted to really progress and if I wanted to give it a go, um, I needed to just get away from everything and solely focus on that. And that again, became my, my why, my purpose. And I kind of said to myself, right, well, I don't want to get to the age of 30 and look back and go, what if, you know, what if I gave it a go? So again, you know, Simon Sinek and all these people start with why, your purpose, all that sort of stuff. I think when I look back on my career, 2006 was when I really decided I was going to give it a go. So that's when I moved over to Loughborough University. Um, and why there? Because they had a good setup. It, it's um, it's kind of the high performance athletic centre in, in the UK. And even the athletes that they had. And that's really what I was looking at. I wanted to be around people who were better than me, people who I could train with day in, day out and had that little ecosystem, you know, and feeding off these people. The coach as well was, had a good track record and bringing athletes through from junior up to senior. Um, and I just kind of went over, visited and I kind of loved the place. I thought it was good vibe, um, young people. And it just somewhere that I felt I could really excel and just, just immerse myself in athletics. When you mention winning, Mm. And that feeling, like just even you describing the European Championship, that yeah. gold, that must be addictive, is it? Oh, that is a drug, yeah. Yeah, that that was, it was something that like just when it happened, you want more of it. You literally want more of it and you'll do, you'll do everything legal to do it, you know, mm. and, and get back to those moments of just even like, I suppose as a kid, you know, you daydream, you know, we've all probably, some, some of us still do, um, you daydream and it was always doing a lap of honour, getting on the podium, our on the the flag over your head, all that sort of stuff. Because I'd seen athletes do it before. I'd seen the likes of Sonia Sullivan and all these. And it was kind of like, you know what? I want that. I want that. Um, and that was it. So when you when you get that and you get the emotional rush, the, like waking up, the, I always think waking up the next day. So after you run a personal best to win a medal, waking up thinking that wasn't a dream. It actually happened. You know, that's that's the drug and that's the thing you want more of. It's uh, You remind me, I was listening to Shane Larry after yeah. when he won the Open and he was just talking about it, like when it set, sets, sets in. in. What, um, when you moved to the UK and with elite athletes and probably you're the full-time coach then, yeah. was that a level up? Definitely, yeah. It was a huge step forward in terms of 
I suppose that holistic approach to my to to my training, um, you know, even down to my mindset, my goals, these simple little things that I probably didn't really focus on here. You know, when I was based at home, it was very much kind of the sport started as a hobby and it still was, you know, it was still the focus was on what are you going to do for a career, your education and things like that. Um, so I never really kind of invested wholeheartedly into my athletics. I didn't kind of look after yeah, my rest, my recovery, my food, even, uh, you know, my goals, things like that. I never really kind of drilled down. Um, and it wasn't until 06 and then I put myself in that environment and I went full time. I did do a master's on the side and stretched that out a couple of years, you know, but the main focus was I wanted to, I wanted to be there as a full-time athlete and I wanted to live like a full, full-time athlete. And that involved everything, like even going to the shops, buying my food, cooking my food, getting a bit more in depth in terms of like, what did I need to do? So start kind of, I suppose that growth mindset came into it. I began kind of banging on doors, working with various people in terms of my psychology, my food, um, even my coach, my strength and conditioning coach. All of these elements began um, to kind of come to the fore. So I began building my team um, and that was essential. So in terms of my approach to everything just went up a complete another different level. And was the goal always Olympics? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Like, I suppose it was Olympics, but it was also, I wanted to make a global final. I wanted to make a world and Olympic final, top eight in the world. And that wasn't really kind of something I focused on initially. I'll be honest. It was very much, I'd won a European indoors. So it was a case of now kind of trying to bring that form to the outdoors. Um, And the outdoors is kind of level, uh, level above. And the way it unfolded was great because within a year, my performances went through the roof. You know, I think I really adapted to that that professional lifestyle um, of looking after everything. And I loved it. I really did. Like, I absolutely loved it. And I won my, I retained my European title in 07. And that was a t- in a time that qualified me for the Beijing Olympics. So I had great kind of um, time to plan because I, could, I, I had my qualification out of the way. So that, again, gave me huge, um, huge belief because I ran a fantastic time back in, that was, that's the Irish record, 45-52. So that qualified me. So again, you kind of, you begin to see instant results of the decisions that you made. And that just kind of breeds confidence again and belief. Um, and that was something that really kind of propelled me forward into, into that career. And again, you're kind of looking at, okay, well now I'm running these times. So that belief kind of get into top of the top 10, the top five in the world. Um, and also kind of on the circuit around athletics, you begin kind of competing against some of these people that you've been following yeah. and you realize, well, they're human beings as well. You know what I mean? Cause we have a tendency to put these guys on, on pedestals. You watch them on TV. Suddenly I was racing against them uh, week in, week out. Uh, and then I was beating a few of them. So again, you kind of, that belief, um, was really kind of going forward and you kind of think, right, well, you know, I want to make a, a global final. I want to get to the Olympics and all these sort of things. Um, I was watching a video, um, on yourself earlier and I was amazed to see the confidence you had and you mentioned in the video a little bit on visualization yeah yeah. how um important was that to your visualizing your goals yeah well I just kind of you know that race in Birmingham when I retained my European title I I really got into the visualization prior to that and that was my first time kind of getting into visualization. I'd done it a little bit before, but probably not as consistently as the weeks or the months kind of leading into the, into that race. But it was something that really, um, it was amazing because I, I can remember lying on my bed in the apartment I was living in Loughborough. And this was probably about a week before that race. And I'd raced in that stadium before. So I knew what the stadium was like, you know, I, I so I could really visualize it. But again, from the track, I, I could smell the track. You could smell the, the, the tartan, the, the sulfur from the gun, the sounds, you know, all of these sort of things. And that brings you to that place. So when you start visualizing, like my heart rate started pumping, my, my palms were sweaty, exactly what you would feel kind of in an environment of a, of a race. Um, and I probably visualized every scenario, you know, because you do, you try and kind of, yes, you have the perfect one, the way the race is going to unfold. But then out of the blue, you might go again and then something happens. And I can honestly say when I crossed the line, I'd won and it felt like I was there before. It literally felt like I was here before because I'd visualized it so much. And it was a strange experience. And I think definitely for me, it probably made me calmer in the situation. Because I remember that race and it was quite tight and I didn't panic, which was, was a credit to myself. But I think because I visualized what could happen, what might happen, even down to the people who were in that race, because you know your competitors and you know the way they run. So how are they going to go out? They're going to go out fast. So you can really visualize how the race is going to unfold. And it pretty much unfolded uh, how I visualize it. Um, 
and it was brilliant. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Like, um, and that was one of, I look back on my career, one of the great days. Like, it, it was. It was really just the emotion of it. I'd made tough decisions in the past. Um, I now put myself in the unfamiliar environment where you're challenged every day. And thankfully, um, you know, my performance came through. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, when you think back to when you mentioned seeing Usain Bolt and the 40,000 mm. fans cheering him on, did it remind you that when you headed to Beijing? What was the Olympic setup like? Yeah, I'll be honest. When I look back at my Olympic experience, I probably, at the time, I didn't enjoy it. Okay. I think um, I think I, I let it all kind of get too much. I think I bigged it up like massively in my head. It was the Olympics. It was the Olympics. And even the year prior to that, so like the late 2007 into 2008, I probably tried to do everything 110%. You know, I, I aimed for perfection and perfection doesn't exist you know um i forgot to enjoy my sport i forgot to actually realize that i was extremely lucky to be able to do what i was doing um i just tried to do absolutely everything 110 percent. i wouldn't switch off i was very much probably very intense in terms of my training my rest and recovery my diet you know i just didn't allow myself to switch off and i think i i let a lot of stress kind of um just got on top of me, you know, so even a little niggle or a little slight little injury, then my world was going to fall apart. Oh no, it's Olympic year and I'm falling behind the guys and stuff like that. And even though I did run well that year, but I actually ran the slowest time of the year in the, in the bird's nest in Beijing. And that was really, really hard. That was really difficult because it was the Olympic games. Um, and it took that, that stung, you know, that really did cut me deep. And I can remember I kind of, I took a holiday after that and was actually, um, it was the first year I started going out with, with, with Charlotte, who's now my wife. Um, and she's English and we went on a holiday, a staycation, I suppose you can call it, but we went to Inish Boffin. And I always remember we were just chatting about like the year that was. And I remember kind of saying, you know what, if like, if I'm going to stick at this sport, I've got to start enjoying what I'm doing. And that was kind of the mantra going into 2009 and, and, and onwards. And it was definitely something that, you know, I really kind of bought into. Yes, you work hard and, you know, you look after yourself, but you need to switch off. You need to flick that off switch. And that's recovery, you know, completely just switch off down the tools. And I really began to focus on that side of stuff as well. Um, you know, just allow myself to be me. And if I wanted to go out and have a couple of beers with my mates or a burger or whatever it was, go have it. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the process, yeah. And... When you're on big race days or events, um, is it all about staying calm and just relax and enjoy it? Because just so I mentioned, I was up at the British Open a couple of weeks back when it was here. Yeah. And I couldn't get over seeing all the professional golfers, Kepka, Woods, all the guys. Yeah. And they're just in this state of in the zone and yeah. nothing's going to affect them. How important is... Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you reference golf there as well. Because I, like, I watched, obviously, Shane Lauer recently. And um, I'd watched a little bit of golf. My mates are all into golf. And it fascinates me because I'm like, right, I need to get my my shit together for like one race i need to get my head together and get into those blocks and just run for ideally 44 seconds you look at a golfer and you look at shane larry for example it's four days 18 holes like it's phenomenal to be it's such a long time to be in that zone but what was interesting that i, I was chatting to someone recently and some psychologists had actually looked at this in depth the amount of time that they spend playing golf is very short it's probably down to, I think they, whoever they were following was nine and a half minutes over a whole round of golf. So when you think of it that way, you kind of break it down a little bit. So they don't actually need to be on for the whole four or five hours that they're out in the course, but you have to manage that. And I heard some great things of famous golfers where they take the shot and then instantly they're looking at the trees and they're looking, oh, I wonder why they put that tree there. They wonder why, you know, straight away they're not thinking about the shot. And that's a skill. And I think, again, for me, it was very much kind of learning how to adapt as well and not be switched on too early. And, you know, even days in advance, because that's, you're, you're using up energy, you're using up your mental resolve and you're switched on too long and it's very hard to maintain that. So that was an area that I needed to kind of work on as well. Um, but it is kind of when you get into that zone, it's a great place. It's a phenomenal place to be in because you're on and you feel it, but you got to manage it. So it's like controlled aggression as well, particularly in my event. Because if I, if I get a rush of blood to the head and the gun goes and I go off like a lunatic, I will die a death. And it's happened. You go off too hard over the first 200, um, 
it's a long way home, you know. So again, you got to be controlled, relaxed. And it took me a couple of years to get into that kind of um, state, that flow state. Um, and I always remember the day it happened. We had a training camp over in Club de Santa in Lanzarote. And my coach had given me uh, time trials over 300 meters. So literally time trials as fast as you can, you against the clock. Um, and it's a good indicator. Now, time trials are a great indicator of where you're at. So you always get a little bit nervous, you know. Um, but for this time trial, I broke down the 300 meters. I literally broke down. What was it going to do? Right. What was it doing for the first 50? What was it doing at the hundred? What was it doing at 200? And what was it doing in the last hundred? So when I learned the little triggers of what I needed to do, it was a case of just getting out of the blocks and just keep ticking those boxes and the rest will look after itself. So that was a huge step forward in terms of my mindset and how I was dealing with the nerves and anxiety. Um, and it worked, you know, my times did improve that year. So I was delighted. It's amazing. It's all true experience. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, you spoke of the highest highs of winning the yeah. gold and you mentioned being away and doing a review yeah. after Beijing. Yeah. Did that change your whole perspective and training for the next few years? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I was probably a bit slow to debrief after good days and bad days. Um, and I think the general kind of consensus is that you'll do a debrief after a bad day. You know, whereas when the, the going's good, oh no, everything's all good, it's all good. Um, and I, that's exactly the way I did it. And then it was after Beijing. And I think Beijing was a tough one because it was the Olympic Games, there's media attention, friends, family, cousins, they all came over to Beijing and then I didn't run well. So it was very hard to take. I felt embarrassed. I felt a lot of, less, a lot of people down. Um, and it, it just took me a bit of time. But like I, I mentioned that point, like it was... It was a moment where I was away from everything that I probably allowed myself to look inwardly and actually debrief and just give myself a bit of me time without dist without a uh, distraction. And that's where I really realized that, look, if I want to have a like a career in this for the next couple of years, I've got to start enjoying it. I've got to be balanced in my approach to it. And that's definitely what I brought into 2009. And 2009 was my best year because I began to enjoy what I was doing. I wasn't overanalyzing it. Um, I worked hard Monday to Saturday. And then, you know, the Saturday afternoons, Sunday was a rest period. So I was trying to enjoy that as best I could. Um, I had a good social network over there. I, you know, I had a girlfriend um, and I was just a little bit more balanced. And I think I was happy. And when I was happy off the track, I was happy on the track. And as I said, 09 was a phenomenal year for me. I, I got under that 45 barrier, if you like. I set the, the Irish record 44.77 and I made the world final in 09. So finishing sixth. And that was a huge, huge thing for me because at the start, that's where I wanted to go, you know. And I, I remember putting like, you know, my mindset kind of changed a little bit that year as well, 07, 08. So I began to think, like really kind of focus on my, my goals. So a little pyramid. And at the very top of the pyramid was uh, a global final. And I went through all the results um, in the previous years and on average, 44.8 was a time that would get you to a final. And I can remember putting 44.8 uh, on top of that little pyramid and that little voice inside my head was like, forget about it, David. You're, you're, a, you're a white boy from Dublin, Ireland. It's not going to happen. You're not going to run that fast. But I challenged myself. And again, if you think of a pyramid, the little granite blocks, the things that build up, um, those are my little 1%. Those are the little kind of, okay, my breakfast, my, my S&C or my recovery, eight hours in bed, whatever it was. You add them up, 1%, 2%, 3%, then you get the element of belief and it's right in front of me. And it was just a little thing I, I, I stuck on, on my bedroom wall. But that's how I suppose my mindset shifted from the process, um, you know, or into the process as opposed to just focus on the outcome. Before I used to put my, a number on a piece of paper, stick it on my bedroom wall and think that's my goal plan I've done for the year. But I never asked myself how, you know. Um, a couple of the questions we got in were regards and athletics and doping. I got a photo there mm. recently of, um, I think it was 2015 and it was a women's race. Yeah. And I think the first five were all on drugs yeah. in the photo I sent. Was it, was there a cloud over the sports back then or is it just something that came with it? I think the cloud is kind of, like, when you go back to the 80s um, and you go back to Ben Johnson and the Olympic final and stuff like that, definitely huge cloud back then then it probably cleared a little bit um and it's come back uh probably darker uh in the last couple of years with everything that went on in russia and the systematic doping um it's a difficult thing because i think now when i finish my clinic i, I look back there's definitely kind of moments where you kind of go hmm or there's athletes that have suddenly come out from nowhere and progression through the roof and then you never see them again um a lot of questions um 
I suppose when I look at my own career, there was never a time where I thought, hang on a second, you know, or did I ever see anything? No, but I, I wouldn't see anything, say, in a competition because, you know, in a competition scenario, it's the, the stupid athletes get caught, you know, um, the stupid dopers, if you like, whereas a lot of smart dopers are on the very sophisticated plans. Um, they're way ahead of the They're testers, way ahead of the testers, way ahead of the testers. And I think, like, I trained in America for one year, I moved out to Florida and... Went over there and I was training with some of the fastest guys on the planet. And um, unfortunately, out of that group of 12 athletes, three tested positive in the subsequent, in that one that year and then in the subsequent year, another two. And I can always remember thinking like, I couldn't sustain that level of training. I broke down. I got a really bad injury in 2011 and I missed that season and for, and as a result missed the, the London Olympics. And I can remember flying home um, absolutely in the dumps. My, my season was done. Um, I literally couldn't run. I tore my soleus and I remember thinking, maybe, maybe they're just better than us. Maybe just that's that. That's the way it is. I can't co- uh, compete with these people. Um, and then, yeah, then they test positive. And... That was hard to take because I was in that environment, but I didn't see anything. And people were asking me, God, you were there, like, what did you see? I didn't see anything, you know, but they could have been, God knows what they were doing in their own homes or apartments. And I think that's where we need to get a little bit kind of tougher, you know, and if you look at the drug, the drugs in the, in the last couple of years and the big scandals, it's all come from whistleblowers. So we have to kind of create an environment where we welcome whistleblowers and they're protected because that's where you're going to really kind of catch the people who are cheating on a very sophisticated level and not only the people, but you've got agents, you've got coaches, you've got government bodies, you've got countries. It's money, isn't it? You know, it it's is money. Yeah. Money. And we've got to get a little And there is change kind of happen, but again, it comes back to what can stand up legally. You know, you, you, you can't easily ban someone, you know, it's their livelihood. And so employment law comes in. Likewise with coaches and, and, and agents and people like this, it has to stand up in the court of law. If you really want to make substantial and, uh, you know, consistent change. Um, there is a huge movement, and even recently in the swimming world championships, you saw people not refusing to get on the podium uh, beside people who had failed drug tests. I welcome all that because it's creating headlines. And if we can get the media behind, you can get the public to, to begin to kind of outcry and, you know, protest, well, then that's a positive. A um, lot more work to do, but you're always a little bit kind of, mm, who was, did I really get beaten? Uh, like I remember in the European final in 2010, a race that, you know, ugh, go back to that place I probably should have won it's one of the ones that keep running over in my head but it was Sleepless a right night oh I'm <laughs> telling you plenty but I finished fifth in that race it was a blanket finish and um, a Russian athlete beat me he was fourth um, and it wasn't as much about getting on the podium but the top four got selected to represent Europe in the, in the Intercontinental Cup which again is an achievement and I always kind of think back to go like maybe maybe that guy you know, was on drugs. That mean I, I came for it. I would have got a, a European vest. Likewise, back in that final in, 2000, in 2009 in the Worlds, you had um, LaShawn Merritt. He won it. He got busted for drugs in, in the aftermath of that. Um, he had a short ban. Then you had Jeremy Warner was in second. You ha- he had a lot of issues as well. Uh, a lot of people kind of asking questions. So did I finish sixth or did I finish fourth, you know? And okay, may not have got a medal, but it was two places higher, you know? So... It's the one thing when I was doing, um, when I was looking at all the Lance stuff, when Lance broke out in the drugs, I, I still can't believe he didn't have to explain the process and where they came from and exactly yeah. who was involved because it's not just one person. No, no. And the team and the money and everything that's covering all this, it's crazy. You mentioned, not trying to get off the drugs topic, but you mentioned tearing your soleus mm. and being in the depths then. Yeah, yeah. Was it a long road back from that or was it just what, where, what am I going to do next? Yeah, it was very, it was really long road. And even going back to your previous comment about the kind of the drug thing, I will reference a book, um, Dwayne Chambers, who was a British sprinter. And he, in his book, he actually goes into the detail about like the team around and what he was taking. I it's must like, get it, yeah. It is. It's like, I'm not going to go out and yeah, buy yeah, yeah, yeah. book, but it is an interesting um, insight into the work and the, like the forensic detail that went into taking the drugs or getting on a drugs program, you know? Um, but yeah, the Soleus was a tough one. I think, you know, we, you talk about resilience and stuff like that. And 
for me, my my graph was just going like I was getting faster and faster, um, and I was improving, and my body was good. I looked after myself, and then suddenly out of nowhere, bam! I get a big injury, and there was probably an element of me I didn't know how to handle that. You know, my routine was thrown up in the air. I was now in the, in the states. I didn't have that team that I had for the last five years around me, um, and I was lost. And I kind of the culture in America was a lot different to what I was used to. Um, we were very, all the athletes didn't really kind of hang out as a group or anything. It was very much isolated. Um, and I think for me, I found that a little bit difficult. And I can remember kind of this injury just wasn't progressing, wasn't progressing. I tried and I tried and then it just kept reoccurring. Um, I ended up missing like two months um, close to the season. I came back, I tried to run, doing time trials and I was way off where I needed to be. And again, you're kind of, alarm bells are going off in your head thinking was this a mistake why did I come here so you start kind of beating yourself up a little bit and I can remember coming home one day thinking what am I going to do and I, I literally remember going on to irishjobs.ie and start putting in going what am, what am I going to do because my mindset completely I went into panic mode um, and then performance wise I tried to race was way out the back door and I can remember thinking I think it was a race in Izmir in Turkey around really poor and that's when I decided I've got to get myself back to, to Loughborough so I went back to the UK um, ahead of London to try and you know get back in shape and stuff like that and I struggled that year I struggled um, because I suppose I, I, I felt I should have been further than where I actually was I didn't accept that I had an injury I didn't accept that right here's where I'm at here's what I need to do I was very much just trying to get back really searching to get back uh, to the level that I was at and I had a reoccurrence of that injury on Paddy's Day 2012 and I knew there and then worse this time and I remember thinking I'm not going to make London and that was hard that was really hard and then having to watch London and you know it's so close to home as well and for me after finishing sixth in Berlin in 09 I really believed that I could challenge in um, in London you know uh, get on the podium that was my focus that's where I believed I could actually get to um and it doesn't happen. You know, you're, you're, you're sitting at home watching all your friends and the people you competed against running in the biggest event, you know. Um, and that was hard. And it's just, I suppose, been from Dublin and it's taken place in London. It was everywhere. You know, it really was. It was everywhere. Took over, yeah. It did, yeah. And that was hard. That was really hard. And I can remember kind of, will I just pack it in? You know, plenty of times I think, you know, maybe I'll just get on the rest of my life. Forget about this. Like, Because um, there's no book that's gonna tell you no. i need to retire here or this is my no. process to this no do you know what it's kind of funny because you're almost kind of i wish someone would tell me you know if someone said to me they forget about it you know you know move on to the rest of your life well then then i'll do that you know and it's really hard because you're kind of you're trying to make a decision yourself but you're just you're lost and i think the run up to that, the years running, coming into that, you know, you're in a routine, you have a process, you have a goal, you're just so determined, motivated, and then suddenly it's all gone. Um, but I said I'd give it another go, and I did. I gave it another year, and I was down in Australia. I was, I was training for a race and preparing for a race in Japan, and I got myself back into really good shape and began enjoying it again and didn't have too many rules and regulations. I just focused on what I was doing on a daily basis and, and got myself back into decent shape. Then I popped my Achilles. This was in May 2013 and that was it. I remember just going, I can't keep doing this myself because it's the cycle. You know, you get injured, you do your rehab, you get back to a level, then boom, something else goes and it's just you're back down in this kind of pit again. And I just said to myself, I can't keep doing this myself. And also, by this stage, I hadn't raced in a couple of years. Um, so my income took a huge kind of dent. Um, sponsors, my grant, all that sort of stuff began to dry up, um, which is fair enough. It's a, it's a high performance sport. And it was a case then, I, I remember kind of thinking, right, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And that was probably a huge moment that I thought, you know, would easily kind of sort itself out. Um, but it didn't. And is there is there a support network there? To ease you into what we call probably the real world yeah. after being at an elite level. But that's the way I term it, the real world, because you're not in a real world when you're training full time. You're in your own little cocoon with like-minded people and it's all about kind of next summer, next season and, and a race and a championship. Um, and at that time, there wasn't any support to come down. You know, there wasn't. Um, there was no sort of system in place to say, bring an athlete into, into the workforce or, you know, I'd never even done a CV you know, a cover letter, I, I didn't know. Um, and it's a bit embarrassing going to people going, hey, how'd you do a CV? Because they're looking at you going, you're not doing this in school. You know, it's that sort of mentality. So you just, 
don't say anything at all. Um, and then it was very much kind of, well, what are my skills? You know, like, yes, I can run fast and I can run around a track. Is that all I'm good at? And then it's very much down to your skills, your expertise, my goal, what, what do I want to do? You know, and that's that's the biggest struggle because a lot of athletes are so focused. Um, and look, some will have exit strategies and some will have other areas of interest um, and, and that's fine. But I think for me, I was very much, I thought my career was going to finish after Rio. I thought I would go to Beijing, London, Rio, and then I'd retire. You know, Half into the sunset. Yeah, that's it. You know, happy out. This is it. Um, but it didn't. You know, and there wasn't at the time anyone really to to, to bring me down or, or kind of bring me into that real world. Things are changing a little bit now, and you'll see that kind of um, off the back of Tokyo. A lot of athletes prepare for an Olympics on four year cycles, and then some will retire and move on with their lives post the Olympics. But we are getting better at bringing our athletes up and then bring them down again because you have to. They're human beings. Um, at the time when I retired, there wasn't a whole lot there, but. Again, I look at myself and I wasn't going out looking for help either. I got very insular. Um, I didn't really want to talk about it. I didn't really want to interact with people because I didn't want the questions. And that was the biggest thing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So if someone asked me, David, what are you going to do? I went into panic mode and I'd feel I'd have to give them some elaborate story about how I was going to take over the world. Why? Because I didn't want to show any weakness. You know, simple as I had come off a sport where I had relative success um, and I felt I had to be as successful or even more successful in the next phase of my life or else I was a failure. So that's kind of where my mindset was at. So going from probably training seven days a week, having a structure, having a structure for your training, your diet, your sleep, your balance and everything. And then here's the real world and... Was there boredom or was it, I don't know what to do? I don't know what to do was the big panic. There was the the lack of routine. There was a lack of a goal, lack of a purpose. Um, where was I going? What was I working towards? All of these emotions. Um, and you're probably worried about what other people are thinking. They're close to you then. Yeah, massively. That I really struggled with that. Even going back to like social media, you know, I got fixated on comparing myself with other sports people who had retired and moved on to things. And again, you look at social media, you think everything's all brilliant. You know, I didn't know their backstory. Everything's all great with the everything's world. Everything's all yeah, great, yeah. yeah. And I can remember looking at various people thinking, why didn't I think of that? You know, and then it was affecting my relationships. It was affecting my sleep. I couldn't sleep. Um, I took a job straight away because I thought I needed a job. I needed money. To be successful, I need money. So I used to look around at people driving cars and nice houses and clothes and think, oh, well, they must be successful because they have all of that. So again, a really materialistic kind of view. Um, and I needed a title. The biggest thing was my identity. I didn't know who I was because for so long I was an athlete. So now if someone came to me and said, what do you do? It's like, shit, what, what do you do? You know, and I really struggled with that. Um, and that was, I'm sure that was a journey, a long process, yeah? Just oh, to go through all that. Yeah, it was, like years. Like, and I'll be honest, it's probably only in the last two years that I, I'm, I'm a lot more open about it. Um, I don't hide behind the mask. I tell people how exactly that journey was. And, you know, I took the job with working with New Balance for a year, great company to work to work for. Um, but I was, I was still by myself. And again, I was driving the length of this country with my own thoughts. There was no podcast. There was no Spotify, no radio. It was literally this negative voice inside my head over and over. I began to resent my career because it put me in a situation I was in. I began to resent MasterChef, all these great things that I'd done because it put me in the situ situation I was in now. And um, I really struggled that. I didn't talk to anyone. I literally kept it all in-house. So my mental health deteriorated. I stopped exercising on a regular basis. I began to comfort eat. Just didn't care, you know. I'd, if I was hungry or whatever, I'd just go and eat poor quality food. And then that cycle kick off again, you know. Um, Did you notice dramatically when you stopped exercising how uh, it made you feel? Yeah, yeah. I just felt tired, lethargic. You know, I had no motivation no motivation and I didn't want to look after myself you know I, there was no inspiration there um, I couldn't sleep I literally was an insomniac I broke out in psoriasis um, I'd fly off the handle um, of stupid little things and just have rows with people because I wasn't happy but I, I, I just I didn't want to admit that so again the stress the anxiety the depression all of these kind of emotions I was just trying to suppress suppress I didn't once kind of debrief so again, you got a picture, the amount of change that I had after all those years. But in, I think it was three weeks, I was in a career that I didn't even know if I wanted to be in here, you know, but again, it was like, I need money. So that went on for a good couple of years. Um, and it all came to a head. It was late 2015 on a Sunday because it was all, I hated Sundays because I dreaded the week, hated them. 
and um, I was kids going to school. Yeah, like that was it. You just I just dreaded Monday morning, um, and it was that was that was kind of you know I can remember Charlotte was pregnant on her first child, Oscar, and she's about eight months pregnant, and. You know, it was hard for her because she's the person that feels, well, she's my wife. She should be able to fix me, help me, all all of this. And she couldn't because anytime Charlotte would say something, I just, the red mist would descend, you know. Um, but I, I eventually got help um, and I needed that. Like I'd been to the doctors and they'd give me prescriptions for antidepressants and stuff like that. And again, that was a moment where I kind of thought, oh God, like, you know, I used to be so into my food and let food be thy medicine and all this. And now... I, I'm, I've been di- diagnosed with depression, you know, um, and that was kind of a moment where I kind of realised, no, I, I need help. I need to talk to someone. And that's where I started a journey with counselling. And I began to understand um, the emotions, like the thoughts in my head. I began to kind of normalise and began to understand as to why I was feeling that way. Um, and it began to make sense. So again, you know, you go through like the bereavement cycle. A lot of athletes in transitions or if you get injured or lose your form, you actually go through the same cycle as bereavement. So I now found myself in a point where I was at acceptance and that was a good point to be in. It's uh, There's amazing value in what you're saying here in your story and, journey, and your journey. You have now come full circle where you're talking and helping yeah. others with your journey. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I suppose like over the last couple of years, um, I got asked to do kind of like a few like keynotes and through various things, um, you know, a bit of public speaking and, you know, in the corporate world, doing, doing a lot of kind of corporate work. And I kind of, at the start of it, was trying to be that person. Like, oh, here's me and here's what I did and all this sort of stuff. And I kind of found it hard because I don't think I was honest with myself. Um, and then one day I just gave a talk about literally this is my story this is the last couple of years this is where I was and this is where I am now Um, and I talked about that and I do talk about that and I'm open and I'm honest and I think in terms of kind of mental health and stigma and you know mental crisis and all this sort of stuff if we don't talk about it nobody's going to learn from it you know and you learn from your experience and you help others and for me that's what it's about you know it's literally this is where I was at and this is how I felt and this was the symptoms or the reactions or whatever it was and then I just kind of tell people about the tips, the advice that I got and the little strategies that I managed to incorporate into my daily life that really helped me and put me back on track. Um, and that's what I, I, I showcase, you know, simple little things. For example, my my nutrition, like trying to look after myself on a regular basis and being balanced about it, you know, not being the food police and being really strict on, you have to enjoy food. You have to, it has to be social. Uh, likewise, with my exercise, you know, getting back to a point where I enjoy running. I enjoy going out and, you know, going for a run and in the summer or a Saturday morning, whatever it is. And again, not being too harsh on myself if I don't make a session, but trying to kind of balance that all out. And then, you know, banging the door, ask for help, work with mentors, ask for advice. If I don't know something, I'll ask. If I don't know how to do a CV, I'll go and ask someone and I won't be embarrassed about it, you know. And those little things have really kind of helped. But it took me a good couple of years to get to that point where, you know, I took the mask off and I was open and honest. So, you know, in terms of the work that I do now, that's a lot of stuff that I'm doing. Um, and you're enjoying that? Yeah. And the feedback from giving these talk, I'm sure is... Yeah, it's good, yeah. Like, to be honest, I'm overwhelmed really because what I find is that, you know, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, whether you went to Olympic Games or you, you, you never ran in your life, we all tend to act and think the same. You know, we all have the same emotions um, and it's how you deal with them. And what's refreshing to me is people come up going, you know what, everything you spoke about there, it was like you were talking to me. And that's the biggest thing, you know. So again, you could be talking to 100, 300 people, but they're all individuals. And what resonates with them could be something that changes their mindset. It could be, could change their lives. And, you know, that's some of the feedback I've gotten. It's great, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm up there telling my story in order to help other people. That's brilliant. Um, you're involved with VHI and your the park runs is a big thing now. Yeah, park runs. I um, well, I got back running. It kind of coincided when uh, I hated running. Right, I'll be honest with you. After careering it, I absolutely hated it. I could, didn't want to read about it, watch it. I was like, I've had it with, with running. And then I used to kind of, I went up to Marley Park one Saturday. This is kind of when I was struggling. I said, I'll go for a run, you know. And I walked into the, the little pedestrian uh, entrance and swung a left. And I was like a salmon going upstream. There was people coming left, right and centre. I didn't know what it was. It found out later it was a park run. So after a couple of weeks, I said, you know, maybe I'll go up and do it. 
And then I, you know, get to Friday evening, I'm like, oh, no, I won't do that. Forget about it. You know, and one of the things was my ego was kind of hold me back a bit because I grew up in that area. My running club was located there in the summer and I was bound to bump into people. So it was always this sort of thing. Oh, someone will compare, blah, blah, blah. Eventually I said, right, I'll go up and do it. Now I've never ran 5k. Never. Wow. You know, there was no need. I was a 400 yeah. meter runner. It just wasn't part of my training program. Um, so again, in athletics, people think, because you were a runner, I, you, you, could, fly you could fly it. You could win this. You could do a marathon as well while you're at it, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but I did it and I went off like a lunatic, you know. Your man hits the buzzer, gone. I was like, you robbed the local shop. I just took off. And then I died at death, but I finished it. And that made me feel good, you know, by half 10 on Saturday morning, I was like, you know what? I enjoyed that. That was good. And then that became a bit of a go-to, a bit of an outlet for me. And again, I got over myself. I kicked the ego to touch and I just got back kind of running. And that, that was 2016. And then I actually raced that year. I got back onto the track and I went for, I didn't want to do a race in Ireland because again, too many people. So I found a little race in, in Italy and um, emailed the meet promoter. How are you doing? I'm David Killick. I ran 44-7, laid it on. Um, and she replied and said, no. And I was like, right, Jesus. So I went back to her again. I said, look, um, I, uh, I've been injured. You know, I didn't want to say retired. And then she came back to me, an Italian lady, and no joke, she says, did you win Celebrity MasterChef Ireland? And I was like, yeah. She goes, no problem. On you come. I was like, right, that was easy. Um, so the long and short of it was, I went over there and I ran in the B race. Couldn't even get in the A race and I ran 48 seconds. But for me, that was a huge kind of moment because I doubted myself for so long. You know, I doubted myself in terms of running. Could I run? Would I make it around? You know, my ego kind of took over and comparing what I used to run. You know, it had to be a 45, it had to be a 47. I ran 48 seconds, which was a time I ran probably when I was like in fifth year in, in Benilda's. But that was one of the best races because I did it for me. You know, I did it for the right reasons and... Um, like that was that was a good day for me just to get back out there, back on track, and give myself a bit of a lift, you know. And that's what it's all about, you know. Has um, you've two kids now, yeah. Yeah, Oscar and Olivia. Yeah. Has family helped and changed your perspective a little? It has, yeah. It has, yeah. It has to. <laughs> I think you know. It's not about you anymore. It's not about me. No, <laughs> yeah. honestly, that and that's it. And it probably took me a while to get used to that because. It's ingrained in you, I suppose, as an athlete, you know, I was priority number one, everything I did, because that was my career. Um, and to be fair to Charlotte, like she, the, probably the reason it worked was because she comes from an athletic background as well. So she understood what I was about. But then Oscar kind of came and it changed my perspective because suddenly there's someone there that like relies on me, you know, um, and it's a real positive. It's great. And even now, like I can be centered with them. I can be there both mentally and physically. I'm not kind of a million miles away thinking of the grass is greener this is it this is my boy this is my girl and I like spending time with them and I think that slowed me down um, and I think that's vital you know I'll always try and put in time at the weekend or the evenings for them and leave the phone at home and put the laptop away and just try and be with them and you know in terms of my own mental health that's a huge positive because I'm not distracted I'm there with people that actually like my company as well hopefully <laughs> um, I'm sure I could talk to you for another hour on this I, I'd love to just before we get done yeah. I'd love to a couple of people ask some questions I'm try to fire these at you before okay. we tie it up no curve balls um, most talented Irish athlete you've ever trained with most talented oh, that's a good that's a great question um i think i would put people like um paul hessian so paul hessian holds the irish 100 meter and 200 meter record um he was a phenomenal pro really hard working um dedicated athlete also from an irish perspective derville rourke um derville her mindset was phenomenal like you know in that kind of pressure cooker of a championship, that was an athlete that always, always brought her A game. You know, she was always able to raise the bar a little bit. Um, other people that have been around, the like current people like Tom Barr, really positive. Um, I think I went back running in 2016. 2016 I was over in Tala. Um, and Rashida Adelecki, who you might know recently, won um, European Youth, won 100 and 200. Phenomenal talent unbelievable talent and um, hopefully she can come through as well so I think in terms of the Irish athletes that I've been around those those people have been really phenomenally talented yeah awesome um, what can Athletics Ireland do to challenge at the world stages and then seven Olympic medal track and field in our history yeah. so what can we do to improve our Athletics Ireland yeah like that that's that's like there's not I can't give one direct answer to a question like that I, I think 
a lot kind of has to change. I think, um, like, obviously, finances. It's, it's money, isn't it's it? It's money, yeah. yeah. And uh, we don't have the biggest talent pool in Ireland, and we have a huge indigenous sport, which um, hoovers up a lot of our talent. I'm not bashing GAA, mm. but that's just the way it is. I think in terms of how we go about it, we need to get a little bit more robust at our grassroots level. We need to try and get as many people out running uh, at a young age. And even if they're doing other sports, like we had Aaron Sexton here, recently who uh, has just finished up his athletic career um, and he was the fastest European under 20 in Europe. And now he finished fifth in the Europeans recently, but he's gone on to Ulster, the Ulster Academy. But I think what it shows is that even getting involved in athletics can really add to your game across other sports. So that mentality, get plenty of athletes, young athletes at grassroots out involved in the sport um, is a huge positive. And then our systems and our procedures, you know, how we nurture that talent, keep it in the, in the game. Um, we're still a little bit behind other nations in terms of our coaching structure. So a lot of our coaches are volunteers, so they're giving up their own time. We've yet to have any full-time coaches in place. And when I've trained abroad and when you go to major championships, a lot of the other nations will have full-time coaches in. And I think there's accountability that way. Um, and that is probably somewhere that we need to change, but it comes back to money as well. Yeah. You know, so there's a few things that need to kind of yeah. shift. Well, we finish off the podcast uh, with a little bit more of a quick fire, light, lighter rounds yeah, yeah. and some of those heavy questions. Um, favorite movie and book? Uh, movie, uh, Gladiator. Gladiator. Um, would that get you pumped before a race? Uh, yeah, yeah, Russell the, only, the only problem with that is it's like, what, three hours long or something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's great. Love that. Uh, Favourite book? Um, I read uh, The Open. Um, Andre Agassi's book is brilliant. Um, I, I'm kind of into, like, sporting autobiographies. Um, Paul McGrath's book is is very insightful. Um and then I think from kind of maybe a mindset sort of one would be Simon Sinek start with why. Um, was great book. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, but there's a few. Yeah. Um, favorite place for a point in Dublin. Oh, um, I'd be old school boozers, anything like that, like your O'Donoghue's, Kios, uh, Grogan's. Yeah, that'd be kind of my sort of style. Now. And if you're grabbing a bit of brunch or a coffee in. Ireland or Dublin, where would you? Where is it one of your favourites? Yeah, do you know what? It's actually that's improved an awful lot. Yeah. Um, We're spoiled for choice. We now, are spoiled we? for choice. Yeah, actually, going back to the point, the blue light. You know, blue yeah, light, uh, yeah, yeah. blue light's a great spot. Uh, brunch. Um, where have I been recently that I've liked? Um, Farmer Brown's down there on um, where the Beggars Bush there. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, Beggars yeah, Bush. Yeah, that's back at Eviva. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a nice little place if you can get into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's probably where I'd go, yeah. And last one, I'm just throwing this in there because the wealth of knowledge you have, what's the best piece of advice you've got? The best piece of advice, uh, or just two answers to this, right? Uh, one was um, trust your gut. We all have a gut, trust it. Um, the second one was how much do you need? Okay, so just to give that a bit of context, when I was really struggling and going back to, you know, success and what does it mean, a guy said to me, well, David, how much do you need? And I remember thinking, what a stupid question. I just want more. And it's only now to realise how much do you need? You know, so one man's 30 grand is another man's 130 grand. It's very good, very good. And David, for people, where can they follow you or keep an eye on you? Yeah, all social media, um, your Instagram, your Twitters. I am developing my website at the moment as well, davidgluck.com. Um, and if, obviously, you've mentioned I'm an author, so there is my most recent book, Back on Track, which kind of talks a lot about everything I've just spoken about, but also uh, recipes, exercise workouts, and a bit of mindset and recovery in there as well. So, uh, yeah, so if anyone wants to get in touch, please feel free. I'll, uh, I'll try and answer any questions. Brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Dave. I appreciate that. It's been amazing having no, you. No, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Cheers.